Amen. You can turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians this morning. 1 Corinthians, we'll be looking at verses 10 through 17 uh, this morning. Um, Let me just, as you're turning there, remind you of last week. Last week we overviewed uh, the book of 1 Corinthians in the morning service. I looked especially at uh, the problems that Paul brings up in the letter. There there are many of them. They're major problems in the church of Corinth. And so Paul gives them solutions to that in this letter. That's one of the things he's accomplishing in 1 Corinthians. Uh, But then starting in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and throughout the second half of the epistle, we noted as well that he's answering questions. The Corinthian church had sent a letter to Paul the Apostle. He's in Ephesus. And as he's there, he, uh, part of this letter is his answering the questions or answering statements that they had made to him about certain topics like spiritual gifts, meat offered to idols, singleness and marriage, and so on and so on. And so uh, we looked at that last week and we said that perhaps the driving imperative of the book was Paul's call for the church to pursue or follow after love. It's going to help them with all of their problems It will also help them as they answer questions that they uh, might have. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, Paul specifically mentions uh, a problem that the Corinthian church had with division and quarreling. Look at verse 11. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Churches tend to dispute and quarrel over all sorts of different things. I've been in pastoral ministry as a senior pastor now for six months or so, but uh, before that I've served in various uh, pastoral functions and had the opportunities to interact with Uh, many of my friends in pastoral ministry, and so on. And when pastors get together, one of the things we do is we try to encourage each other. And sometimes that involves listening uh, to other pastors. I've heard pastors tell stories about the strangest things that that led a church to quarreling and division. There's a story I heard uh, of one pastor who described a church was split over the color of the shingles that would be used to roof the building. Half of them were arguing for gray, half were arguing for black. And it seemed after much quarreling that the only solution that the pastor could contrive was uh, was to roof half of the roof gray and the other half black. Okay. When the next service, the church started lining up under the section of the roof that they were supporting. I remember a pastor telling me a story about a clock that caused a dispute in the auditorium. The pastor wondered if they should remove it, and there was split opinion. I've heard stories of two business meeting long controversy over whether or not a church should be allowed to buy a weed eater. It really took them two business meetings to figure that out. Remember one man telling the story of a youth group who used a crock pot from the church kitchen without gaining appropriate permissions. 
It's led several people to get offended, disturbed, and so on. We can divide over all sorts of different things. In 1 Corinthians, it's obvious that this church is dividing up. But Paul does not offer a quick solution to it. The first thing I want to suggest to you this morning is that Paul's answer to their problem of dividing and quarreling is a long answer that takes the first four chapters in the book. There are many different reasons why. I think chapters one through four are a whole or a unit. Let me give you a few of those. In chapter one, Paul frequently uses the word that's translated word, logos. It can also be translated eloquence or speech. He uses it in chapter 1, but then he also uses it throughout the four chapters, and he closes the discussion with a bracket talking or describing this word word. Look in your Bibles at 1 Corinthians 1, verse 17. It says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words, Plural form, words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of his power. Verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly to to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Here at the beginning of this section, he has got some things to say about human talk or words and the word of the cross. You go to chapter 2 in your Bible and you look at verses 4 and 5, you'll see that he's continuing an emphasis on words or talking. Look at verse 14 or verse 4 of chapter 2. And my speech could be translated words. And my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and in power. As Paul's reflecting upon his time planting the church in Corinth, he said, I didn't use fancy words. But what I did come with was a demonstration of the power of God, the spirit of God. We go to the end of this section. You'll see that this word logos, this word word is never far from his mind in the whole section. Look at chapter four and verse 18. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I'll find not the, and this could be translated word, or words, same word, not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. Well, Paul, isn't that unfair? Why would you come to Corinth and judge them regarding their words? Or judge them regarding their power? Well, he explains in the very next verse. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, words, but in power. That's why Paul feels that he can judge them in regards to words or in regard to power. And so all throughout this section, Paul is dealing or handling this issue of human speech or eloquence. It kind of weaves its way through the whole section. You may have noticed as well that Paul has a lot to say about power. Power itself is mentioned at the beginning of the section, at the end of the section, to hold it all together. So look at verse 17 of chapter 1. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. In the very next verse, he's going to talk about the fact 
that the wisdom of the cross is the power of God to us who are being saved. We mentioned in chapter 4 at the end of the passage that when Paul comes, he's going to judge them not in reference to their words or their talk, but in reference to their power. You see, Paul is pulling all of this section or holding it all together. Another reason why I think that his answer to division takes this whole section is because Paul will string another word repeatedly throughout the four chapters. If you're reading it this week in your devotions, you'll see the word wisdom 16 times in chapters 1 through 4. And you'll see the word related to it, the adjective wise, 10 times. 26 times in the first four chapters, Paul talks about wisdom. He has much to say about it because the Corinthians are embracing human wisdom instead of God's wisdom found in the cross of Christ. And Paul's concern for wisdom starts in chapter 1, and it doesn't end until chapter 4. As a matter of fact, in chapters 1 and 3, near the end of this section, Paul makes the same point, but he kind of inverts it. So if you were to read 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 25, a point that you would get there is that the cross of Jesus is foolishness to the world. But then in chapter 3, and the very end of that passage, in verses 19 and 20, he inverts it and he says that the world's wisdom is foolishness to God. Okay, so the lost Gentile people, they think the cross is foolishness, but actually God thinks their wisdom is foolishness. That's where he's going. Also in chapter 1, the Corinthian believers were, were claiming to belong to certain apostles. We just read this. I am of Paul, or I have Apollos, I have Cephas. Whereas let's read chapter 3, verses 21 through 23. Chapter 3, near the end of this four-chapter section, verse 21. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul, Apollos, Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God. God's. The Corinthians were claiming to belong to the apostles. Paul says the apostles are actually your servants. They belong to you. You're over the apostles. And so Paul deals with division in chapters 1 through 4. But their quarreling and division, I believe, are just a symptom of a greater problem. They were quarreling and dividing because many of them were captivated by wisdom delivered through eloquence in public speaking. Go back to chapter 1 for a moment. Look at verse 17. Paul, in describing the sort of message or ministry he has, he says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom. Seems to me that some of the Corinthians were obsessed with wisdom delivered through eloquence. 
And so this section is about divisions and quarreling, but it's also about wisdom and eloquence. And that is, in my opinion, because their quarreling and rallying behind certain leaders was somehow carried on in the name of wisdom. See, the Corinthians wanted wisdom, wisdom, and more wisdom. And they were attracted to leaders who could give them that. Paul, however, gives them cross, cross, and more cross. They want eloquence and rhetorical flair in presentation. Paul gives them God's power, simply delivered. No cartwheels, no gimmicks, no quick step and a clap to draw attention. No polished philosophical sermon either. Just the most powerful message ever given. Simply given. I want to work through this passage very quickly with you. Verses 10 through 17, I see the argument unfolding in this way. In verse 10, you see the desire of the Apostle Paul. Verse 10 says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. Paul's appeal to the church is threefold. You can see that very easily with the word that that is repeated three times. The, the verb is governed by that word. Paul has three appeals. He wants them first to be unified in voice. Unified in voice. That they would all agree, the text says, that they'd be saying the same sorts of things. This phrase that you would all agree was, was often used of political communities who were free from factions. It was a stock phrase or term that simply meant that they would all be in agreement with each other. Paul wants them to be united in voice. I like what one commentator said about this. His name is Ed Garland. He explains that the church is to be like a chorus singing from the same page of music, not like a cat's concert. That was a vivid picture, wasn't it? When, when unbelievers view us, they should see uh, a display of unity in that we're all speaking about the same sort of things. Grace, gospel, Christ, scriptures. Okay? They shouldn't see us all divided up and quarreling, saying our own things. He wants them to be united in action as well. He, the next phrase, that there be no divisions among you. I'm in verse 10, that there be no divisions among you. Where divisions is a plural noun that could be translated splits or tears. What I found in studying the word is it's not used very often in the New Testament. It's used only eight times in the whole New Testament. Paul the Apostle uses it three times, and each time Paul uses the word divisions, he uses it in 1 Corinthians. Okay, so this is a word that he reserves for the Corinthian setting. But Paul says, I don't want there to be any divisions. I want, to avoid, I want you to avoid splits. I want you to be unified in action. And then the last one in verse 10, uh, that, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. He wants them to be unified in thought. 
The word united means to be made complete. I found it used in the Gospels in Matthew 4 of the need to mend or restore some nets needed to be united or joined back together. Paul says, my desire is that you would be united together, that you'd be restored or rebuilt in your thinking so that you would present the same opinions, values. This is the desire of the Apostle Paul. That leads to the second point in my three points, the report from the house of Chloe, verses 11 and 12. Verse 11, I've already read this, but let me read it again. It says, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Paulus, or I follow Cephas, or I, or I follow Christ. What we learn is that although Paul's desire would be for the church to be unified, they were not measuring up. As a matter of fact, the, the first word for indicates the ground or the reason why Paul just said what he said about unity. I gave you all this stuff about unity and be united in thought, action, and, and uh, deed because I've heard, that I, I've heard a report from Chloe's people that you're not. Specifically says that it was declared to him by the house of Chloe. The word declared means that Paul received an irrefutable report. An irrefutable report by Chloe's household. Now, sadly, we don't really know who Chloe is. Uh, She was probably a rich woman uh, with household servants and family living in her estate. She may have been a part of the church of Corinth or perhaps a part of the church of Ephesus, where Paul is. People are split on that. But regardless, she traveled back and forth from Corinth to Ephesus. And when Chloe or her household members came to where Paul was in Ephesus, their report was not a good one. She specifically reports that there were quarrels among them. That's verse 11. There is quarreling among you. Where quarreling means hot disputes or outward arguments. Paul's desire was for unity, but that's not what he's hearing. It's bad. Hot, angry disputes. To give more clarity about these disputes, in verse 12, he describes their division. Paul picks up on what I think are four Corinthian slogans. Some believers in the church at Corinth were claiming special allegiance or fondness to Paul the Apostle. They were his disciples, if you will. Uh, What we have to remember about this setting is these people lived in a culture where people would often claim to be the disciple of another person. I've never heard that in our culture today, at least regarding myself. I've never heard someone come up or someone tell someone else, I'm Brent's disciple. It just seems awkward and strange. But in this culture, in the first century, people would often do that. Uh, Regarding the Paul group, I don't think that this group may have been that large. When one studies 2 Corinthians, for instance, we find out that some in the church were saying this about Paul. They were saying... 
His letters are weighty and strong. It means he writes good letters. But his bodily presence is what? Weak. He's a weak little man. And what do they say in the rest of that? And his speech, his, by the way, his words, his logos, is of no account. You don't even need to consider what that weak man says. So it's obvious that some in the church of Corinth weren't, weren't of the Paul group. But others, perhaps, faithful to him because he was their father in Christ. Maybe he led them to the Lord. They were loyal to him. And so some were saying, I, you know, in this issue, I, I line up with Paul. I am of Paul. Others were saying or claiming special allegiance to Apollos. Uh, I invite you to turn your Bibles to Acts 18 for a moment. I want, want to show you a little bit about Apollos and his ministry in Corinth. Uh, Apollos was someone the Corinthian church was familiar with. Because just after Paul planted the church there, he was there for a year and a half, a traveling itinerant preacher came to Corinth, and his name is Apollos. I want to read to you a little bit about Apollos so you get a better idea of who he is. Acts 18, verse 24. Says, uh, now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, that's where Corinth is, that's the province of Achaia, is where the capital city of Corinth is. The brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus, Acts 19.1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the island country or inland country and came to Ephesus. You could go back to 1 Corinthians for a moment. The Corinthians are familiar with Apollos. He is a learned Jew from Alexandria, Egypt, and he's eloquent in the scriptures. I imagine that Apollos's preaching was more popular than Paul's. Paul's preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom. As Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 2, he says, when I came to Corinth, I came in weakness fear, and much trembling. Yet Apollos mightily convinces people that Jesus is the Christ. So Apollos comes to Corinth with all the gifts and graces of an impressive speaker. So some there might say, Apollos, now that's a great preacher. Claim allegiance to him in that way. So others were saying, no, I... I'm not of Paul, I don't follow Apollos, but on this particular subject, I am a fan of Peter, or Cephas. Different word for Peter. 
you do not know much about the Peter group in 1 Corinthians, it is apparent in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians that the Corinthians knew that when Peter traveled around in his ministry, he took uh, a woman with him, either his wife or a sister, probably a wife when Peter traveled, but Paul didn't have one to travel around with. So they at least know something about Peter. Perhaps this group would be more appealing to Jews in the group. We, we, we just don't know. But then you, you, you're following along in the text, and you get down to the bottom of verse 12, and it says that some say that they follow Christ. So we'll take a moment to look at the Christ group. Okay. The Christ group is like the favorite subject of every commentator ever on 1 Corinthians. They find the Christ group like everywhere in the epistle. Okay. Matter of fact, one old commentator by the name of Godet, he has got a 12-page section about the identity of the Christ group. His only problem, as I see it, is that it's entirely built on speculation. All of it. <laughs> So we need to be careful about who the Christ group is. But let's, let's talk about them for a moment. It, it might be that there was a group in Corinth who had proper intentions and that they wanted to rise above the discussion. They didn't want to declare loyalty to any of the apostles, but they, they were declaring loyalty to Christ. Uh, but I think that that perhaps is a bit of a stretch. It doesn't seem like Paul is saying that being a part of the Christ group in Corinth is a good thing. It may be that he's using sarcasm, though, or he's exaggerating. You're dividing up into all these groups, Paul, Paulus, uh, Cephas, or Christ, and he's using sarcasm. But I believe that he's probably referencing a pious group in the church at Corinth, in that there were some there who were claiming to be above the dispute, at least in their own minds, We've probably all met other people like this before, right? Who rise above a discussion. I'm not a Calvinist or an Arminian. I'm a Biblicist. Now, I understand what we're trying to do there, and I think some people do that in the right way. But other times, I think it's a, it's a little bit of elitism. I always think of a Calvinist or an Arminian hearing that and say, oh, yeah, maybe I should use the Bible too. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't think about that. I was just like using these theologians. I never. Well, we understand. And, and so it could be that this Christ group was similar. Regardless, we must learn from the mistakes of the Corinthians. We cannot allow our primary allegiance to turn to any one member or leader of the church. In a moment of application here, we, we cannot tolerate personality cults in our church. We are not all about any one preacher or leader of the church. Colonial, we, we cannot have you know, a, a groupie-like mentality where we line up behind certain leaders in the church. Have you ever heard someone boasting about the preaching of such and such an online preacher? Man, have you heard the preaching of... Uh, I'll use John MacArthur because he's a good one, right? We just talked about... Have you heard the preaching of John MacArthur? Man, it's like every time. It's awesome. It's so good. And we talk about these preachers as if they almost offer infallible gifts in preaching. 
say, but then other people come along and say, no, I don't like John MacArthur. I like John Piper. Now, he's a true exegete. I mean, he really gets into the scripture. I like him better. And sometimes it almost sounds to me like we're saying, I am of MacArthur, or I am of Piper. But men and women, we can be thankful for their gifts or their expositions, but we cannot follow any human leader, whether inside of this church or outside of this church, as if they offer infallible leadership and preaching. And so Paul lays out this problem. He's got this report from Chloe. But then in verses 13 through 17, and I'll go quickly here. I recognize I only have a few minutes. He gives an initial solution to their division and quarreling. His initial solution in verses 13 through 17 come through a series of questions and then a brief digression. Verse 13, he asks these three questions, I think, to highlight the supreme nature of Christ's ministry that should keep us from declaring other allegiances. In verse 13, he asks, is Christ divided? With this question, which is a perplexing question, I think he is basically expecting a no answer. No, Jesus can in no way be divided He is whole. He is complete. So then the follow-up logical response would be, so why is his church divided? I think basically, in in other words, what Paul's saying here is there's nothing about the nature of Christ himself that should allow for these sort of divisions in your assembly. And when you're all divided up, quarreling with each other, that is a contradiction of the very nature of Jesus himself. Is Christ divided? No, of course not. So we shouldn't be either. And then he asks these other two questions. Uh, Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? These second and third questions are about the supreme nature of Christ's ministry. These two questions, I think, point to the need for exclusive loyalty to Christ alone for what he has done for us. One of the functions of these three questions, which are hard to interpret, is that they offer a quick dismissal of the idea of putting Christ on the same level as the other apostles. Jesus did so much for us. We cannot lift up others and put them on the same level. You can't do that. Why? Because when we do that, sadly, Christ loses. He's just like one of the others. But then in verses 14 through 17, I see this brief digression where Paul describes the selfless nature of his own ministry a bit more and, and why he did what he did so as the church wouldn't exalt human leaders. Look with me at verses 14 through 17. It says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did also baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Here, Paul starts with this unusual statement, right? He says, I thank God that I didn't baptize many of you at all. 
That question is, was perplexing to me this week, again. Okay. Why would any preacher not only acknowledge, but boast or be thankful for the fact that he didn't baptize anyone? So there's something peculiar here, which I think makes sense when you understand the Corinthian church a bit more. And so I want to make two observations about them to close here. First, it appears to me that some of the Corinthians had a wrong or a deficient view of baptism. In that, they gave special recognition to the person who baptized them. You say, well, where do you see that? Well, I see that in verse 15 when Paul talks about the purpose why he's thankful he didn't, or why he didn't baptize many people. He says, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. Often in the first century, to be baptized in the name of someone meant that you would devote your allegiance to the person who did the baptism. So that we don't have the time to turn there. You could turn to John 3 and Acts 19 to find that there was a group of people who followed the teaching of John the Baptist. And they were baptized by him. Thus, they became known as John's disciples. And that sort of thing was going on in the first century. And so one of the reasons why Paul strategically did not baptize many people in Corinth is he didn't want people saying that they were baptized into him or that they were Paul's disciples. So Paul didn't baptize many of them except Crispus, a ruler of the synagogue who was converted very early on, and Gaius, who was also converted early on. Oh, and also Stephanus. You see that in your Bible? Verse 16. Verse 16. Look at that again. There's this parenthesis. I did did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. Paul didn't keep tallies of all the people he baptized. What's interesting to me is Paul is writing this letter. He has three visitors who've come from the church of Corinth to where he is in Ephesus. Their names are Fortunatus, Achaicus, and Stephanus. And so I can imagine Paul the Apostle penning the words, I baptize Crispus and Gaius. And then you hear a... <clears throat> oh, and also the household of Stephanus. Or Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know of any other. Right. Baptizes Stephanus, who may have been there when Paul is writing this letter. Regardless, Paul is thankful that he did not baptize many of them to guard against becoming too much to the Corinthian assembly. I think another reason he's thankful is verse 17. He's thankful, he explains why he didn't baptize many. The reason is, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul did not baptize many Corinthians because that was not his calling. He was to focus on giving the gospel to others plainly. And that's what he did in Corinth. We'll talk more about verse 17 next week. But Paul in this section exalts Christ and humbly does his job. And his selfless ministry should push us as believers 
to rally around Jesus Christ and to make much out of him. Men and women, this week, may we do our job and point other people not to a preacher, but to Jesus. I pray that God will give us the grace to do that. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for this passage of Scripture. I thank you, Lord, for what you've taught us in it. Lord, it's so easy for us to be obsessed with things on our plane. Human people, leaders, personalities, gift sets, styles, and to lose focus of the one who really gives the growth. Lord, may this church be one where we say the same things, where we think the same things and do the same things to exalt the person and work of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.